everyone, and welcome to History Speaks, a podcast brought to you by the Neven, generously funded by the Henry Luce Foundation. My name is Nazine Ali, and I am your guest host for today. History Speaks is a series that focuses on how the Islamic historical tradition speaks to contemporary concerns. And today, we are discussing Muslim history in the United States. In this episode, we have a very special guest, Edward Curtis IV, who is a professor and public scholar of Muslim history in the U.S., as well as African-American and Arab-American history. He is a professor of religious studies at the Indiana University School of Liberal Arts at Indiana University, Purdue University in Indianapolis. He's the author of multiple books and articles, and today we will be discussing his latest book titled Muslims of the Heartland, How Syrian Immigrants Made a Home in the American Midwest which paints a vibrant picture of the deeply rooted history of Muslims in the United States, more specifically in the American Midwest, which is a region not everyone would necessarily expect for Muslims to have such deeply rooted histories. Here's our conversation. Welcome, Edward, and thank you so much for being with us. I'm really excited to have you here on the podcast. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me, Tazveen. So you've been writing about Muslim history in the U.S. for many, many years now um, in a range of different medium. And one of the things that's so striking and distinct about Muslims of the heartland is the personal dimension to it and the way that uncovering, you know, this rich history of Muslim and Christian immigrants from greater Syria in the early 20th century is in effect uncovering your own family history. Um, You yourself are from Southern Illinois. Uh, We were just talking before the recording started about the St. Louis connection. Um, You live in Indianapolis, deep family roots and connections in the region. And so I wanted to start off by, you know, talking with our listeners a little bit about your own background, because the book really seems to sit at the intersection of your own family history and your scholarly expertise. You're essentially mediating this history that you yourself are a product of. And so how did your family history and background shape your motivation and interest in, in writing this book? And what has writing this book meant to you and your family now that it's out in the world? I uh, am, as you mentioned, a descendant of the populations about whom I'm writing. And when I say the population, what I mean are the um, what we would call Syrian and Lebanese or Ottoman Syrians who immigrated to the United States before World War I. Most of them were Christian, um, but there were in the Midwest significant Muslim minorities among them. Uh, and I think, you know, the book it does. It was so their Arabic speaking identities were so important to them that in, in, in so many ways these days, when we're studying Muslim Americans, we put the Muslim first. But I think we really in order to understand them in their context, we have to understand their ethnic as much as their religious identities. And so so this this Arabic speaking world that they developed and then the descendants of those people, that's the background of my own family. Different people came over at different times, but the the Samaha later, and then they changed their name to Moses, came to Southern Illinois, and the Hemaways came to Southern Illinois. Before World War I, they intermarried. Oftentimes, that generation did intermarry in their same ethnic, uh, sometimes religious group, sometimes outside of their religious group. And so those were the stories that I grew up with. And one of the reasons why I wanted to write the story when I did was because of this feeling, this need to reclaim our roots in the Midwest in the midst of an era, you know, after Donald Trump was elected, but even before that, when Vice President Mike Pence tried to ban Syrian refugees resettling here in the state of Indiana to reclaim our roots, and to show the long history of our people in the region. That's such a prominent theme throughout the book in terms of reclaiming this narrative of the Midwest. And we were talking a little bit about this uh, just before, where the Midwest is not typically the kind of region where we associate this kind of diversity. Or when we think about people like politicians like Mike Pence or Trump, um, and the caricature of the Midwest is kind of this real America in quotations meaning white America. And your book shows that this was this was not the history and this was not the case. It's remarkable that the Ku Klux Klan got its wish. 
In the 1920s, the second iteration of the Klan wanted to rewrite American history and erase the racially and ethnically diverse populations who had made America what it was. Yeah, you know, fueled its factories, who, you know, who had done its farming. I mean, it was, you know, this and this region was so shaped by immigration, you know, in the late 1800s and the early 1900s. I mean, you go anywhere in the Midwest and it doesn't take, you know, but a little bit of exploration to see the massive changes in this region after these uh, immigrant populations come in at this time. And also, of course, especially after World War I, African-American migration from the South, which completely changed the region. Unfortunately, that version of U.S. history, which erases everything but white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, is now regnant again, at least among many Midwesterners, especially rural Midwesterners. Well, where I grew up, some of the counties around which I grew up in Southern Illinois went over 75% for Trump. These are some of the same counties that voted for Obama before, which is remarkable. One of the things I really wanted to do was to reclaim these stories, not so much to convince my fellow Midwesterners who think of me as a foreigner, as a perpetual foreigner, but for me and people like me to remind us of our people, of the marks that they have left, who we are and why it is possible I was brought up by my Arab American family members to love the Midwest. We're rural people, to love its land, its flora, its fauna. That was all a part of it. And, you know, as much as anything, this land, which of course is native land, the mm-hmm. land that land that on which we settled, that that is much a part of us as the as our as our fellow Midwesterners. It was almost a way of explaining to myself how I still felt an attachment to a place where a number of people who lived in it <laughs> didn't necessarily want me or people like me to live to live here anymore. Right. No, and I, I really appreciate that point you just made about audience, right? So this is not this book is not to convince others that Muslims or Arabs belong here in white America, but to, as a reminder to those communities themselves of what that history is. Which is a different, very different posturing than I, I, I think a lot of earlier literature uh, about Islam in America, and as as yourself being one of those pioneering scholars of, of this subfield, where there I think there has been a shift in in kind of thinking about different audiences and what is now the goal for scholars of Islam in America: a to uncover a history, but for who is it to convince this idea that there are Muslim rights or claims to the land of being native born or what year you arrived when, as you pointed out, we're on indigenous land. And, and I think that that's an important nuance here that, that comes through as a sort of celebration of Muslim, of Arab, of Assyrian Christians or immigrant history in the region. Um, I wanted to go back to this question of erasure since we've touched on it, reversing the erasure of Arab Americans of Muslim Americans from American history is this prominent theme that emerges throughout the text. And I wanted to um, ask you about, if you could talk a little bit more about that historical dynamic of erasure. So what are some of these factors that contributed to this forgotten history of Syrian Muslims in the Midwest? And as you just alluded to, this myth-making of the KKK narrative that this region has always been white, that this country has always been white. So I wondered if you could just, again, just, just touch on that historical dynamic of erasure. Why are we at this stage? where there has been this project now to, to try and uncover this, this history of, of Syrian Muslims in the Midwest. Yeah, there are multiple levels of erasure. I mean, so first of all, we, we already talked about the KKK uh, sort of version of American history. The other factor here, of course, is that much of Arab American history has been dominated up to this point by by Arab American Christians who assumed or thought that they found little evidence of Muslim presence in the Midwest in particular. And so part of what happens is because Muslims are minorities among the Arabic-speaking people too is where they do not have a critical mass of Muslims to pass along their identity they oftentimes either stop being Muslim, stop identifying as Muslim, 
maybe they convert to Christianity. This happens in Ross, North Dakota, for example, one of the sites of one of the first American purpose-built mosques. This is normal in rural areas. What happened, though, is by the time Arab-American historians were writing the history, even the, the, the evidence that Muslims had existed was not as plentiful. In some cases, Muslims were buried underneath Christian graves. That was such a striking example. Yeah. So as you talk about, there was like these patterns of assimilation. There's kind of a sense of conflation, it seems, between the Syrian Muslim and Christian immigrant communities because Christians, as you write, have made up the majority of those immigrants. But there's this really striking example of Joe Hassan Shami, a World War I uh, Muslim soldier. And I wonder if you could talk about that. So Joe Hassan Shami, he comes from Sioux Falls, South Dakota. He, like so many Muslim and Christian Syrian Americans, serves in World War I, the American Expeditionary Force. He loses his life and he's buried in a cemetery in France. And to this day, it's one of those cemeteries, you know, it's it's quite bucolic, it's beautiful. But at that time, either got buried underneath a cross or a marker with a star of David. The Jews were Jews were recognized, but Muslims were not. There was no way for a Muslim to be recognized in the U.S. military at that time. And so uh, to this day, his body is sitting underneath that. And the reason why we know he was Muslim, he came from a Muslim family. He was talked about as a Muslim. And he even told the census taker in 1915 from South Dakota, they asked, they asked about people's religion. He, he said he was a Mohammedan or a Muslim. That was just one of them I found. I suspect there are many more such erasures. Right. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. That was such a, there, and there's so many striking examples like that throughout the book. I think um, there's just one other, you know, historiographical reason why, and it was pointed out by Sally Howell in Old Islam in Detroit. The supermajority of Muslims in this country today trace their roots to a post-1965 immigration. Mm-hmm. So they are not connected organically to the pre-1965 Muslim pioneers and founders. As a result, they're cut off from the kind of institutional memory that gets passed along in families. And because mm-hmm. there were so many, oftentimes what, they, what happened was they would come into a mosque and they would represent the majority in that mosque, and the mosque would become a post-65 immigrant mosque. Mm. And so the memory of who Muslim Americans were before 65 was not often passed along. And that's another form of erasure. Some of the post-65 immigrant leaders thought these people were bad Muslims. They didn't right. Islam properly. Right. Yeah, and exactly. so they said, oh, no, they were just a social club. They didn't, they didn't actually practice Islam. Of course, they did practice Islam, but maybe not in the modern reform version of Islam that the post-65 immigrants wanted it practiced, how they wanted it practiced. Yeah, and, and that's such a critical point in terms of thinking about continuities and ruptures in the way that we tell history, um, which, as you just stated, is another form of erasure, which is how we get to the state where the Midwest is sort of not conceived of as this sort of heartland of, of Muslims or of diversity. Um, so I wanted to get back to some of the the portraits that you were alluding to right now, where you present these really inspiring, beautiful portraits of diverse, multi-ethnic, multi-religious Midwestern communities in these towns, while also highlighting the very persistent presence of discrimination against Syrian American communities, sometimes especially the Muslim communities. And I wanted to talk a little bit about the kinds of discrimination that Syrian Muslims uh, individuals faced and, and the places that this shows up in the historical record. And I wondered if we could also talk a little bit about how that conforms to, and it's also different from the kinds of anti-Muslim sentiment and violence we have seen more recently in the U.S. So on the one hand, a lot of the anti-Syrian bias, both against Muslims and Christians in the late 1800s and the early 1900s, it took the form of uh, the kind of xenophobia that was popular at the time, which associated immigrants with dirtiness. I mean, the, where Syrian Muslims and Christians lived, whether it was Indianapolis or other places, uh, New York, um, oftentimes it was associated, these neighborhoods with squalor, with disease, particularly eye disease, mm-hmm. trichoma. 
you know, that was said that they were bringing in these diseases. You know, we see that in the way in which um, some Americans talk about Latinx immigrants, but that isn't the primary way in which Islamophobia takes form. There were other continuities between the anti-Syrian discrimination then and today. And one of them was, of course, they can't assimilate because of their culture. They're exotic. They tend towards fanaticism. Um, these mm. sorts of things were as much a part of that era as they are ours. Interestingly, though, <laughs> when it comes to women, there was a big difference because so many of these Syrian and Lebanese women uh, um, with the just a quick reminder that Lebanon really doesn't become its own country, right, until the French occupation um, right. after World War I. So when we talk about Syrian, we're talking about greater Syrian, you know, mm -hmm. uh, which includes Lebanon, Syria, Palestine, and Jordan of today. So these, these Shami or, or Syrian women were known to be uh, extremely intrepid. Uh, they were peddlers. They were, there were complaints in the Minneapolis newspapers that they were too aggressive, um, mm. that they weren't ladylike. One of the social reform movements, as several of my colleagues have revealed, was to get Syrian women back in the home because they were working too much outside the home. Right. And, and, and there was the implication of there being uh, sexual impropriety, licentiousness. So the problem with Syrian women in the late 1800s, the early 1900s, was that they were too libertine. They were too free, uh, as opposed to today, where, of course, the, the stereotype is, is quite the opposite. Right. It's so interesting because it shows how anxieties over Muslims oftentimes just, you know, reflect the general anxieties that are happening in American society at that time. And they get sort of projected onto foreigners or outsiders all wrapped up in xenophobia. So that's a really interesting point. And I hope we can come back to the question of, of women shortly. So as, as crucial it is, is then to uncover this important history and begin to reclaim particular narratives around Muslim claims to U.S. history, um, it's clear, as you just mentioned, that as integrated as these communities were, uh, both Christian and Muslim, greater Syrian American communities, um, they were, especially the Muslim communities, were routinely subjected to discrimination, often on the basis of their racial identity, as you highlight in the text. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about whiteness, because this was a, during a period in the U.S. when citizenship was tied to whiteness, uh, which, of course, we continue to see today, maybe stronger than ever in terms of uh, more recent history. Um, but let's say that citizenship was tied to whiteness in more explicit ways in the past. And so there are these really striking examples that you draw from newspapers that deploy particular language. And it's interesting to think about the continuities, as you highlighted in your response right now, because I think, especially, you know, when we teach about Islam in America at the undergraduate level or teach on Islamophobia, I think there's this assumption that anti-Muslim sentiment can be traced back to 9-11 or, or the post-1979 sort of Iranian revolution context or the 90s, um, Cold War, and of, and of course, 9-11 becomes this big sort of factor but this language, as you show, is very readily applied in the early 20th century. And so it's interesting to think about those continuities and also the ruptures, as you pointed out, with the issue with um, women in that earlier time period. And you also show how that differed from place to place in some place like Cedar Rapids or Sioux Falls. And so I thought that was interesting to also think about the, the regional differences in how the discrimination sort of played out. It, it sort of was tied to the kind of, I don't know if you would say the, the shape or the strength of the communities in those places. How would you maybe describe or account for the differences from place to place in, in the different sort of towns and cities that you address? Well, I, I, one of the continuities between um, now and then was the role of the federal government in stoking furthering what today we call Islamophobia, might just call it anti-Muslim discrimination. Mm -hmm. And there was also concurrent with the anti-Syrian discrimination and other forms of xenophobia. One of the things that I found in my research was an affirmation of the recent, or I don't know if it's recent, but of the shift in understanding Islamophobia, not simply as the ignorance of uneducated people there towards Muslim people or the personal 
hangups or hatreds of, of non-Muslim individuals, but rather an institutional and structural form of life that discriminates against Muslim Americans. Because of critical race theory, we understand more generally how much structures and institutions play an important role in racism. Well, you asked for the question of whiteness. This directly impacted Syrian Muslims because in 1908, the federal government, the Department of Commerce and Labor, I believe, sends out federal marshals all over local courts across the Midwest and across the country telling judges to stop naturalizing, to stop giving naturalized citizenship to Syrians because they're not white. Now, at the local level, they were, at least legally speaking, they were white and thus able to be citizens. Because remember that if you were defined as Asian at this time, you could not become a naturalized citizen of the United States. That was illegal because of all the exclusion acts, in particular in the 1880s. Right. So it's very important that you fight for your whiteness if you want to be a citizen of the United States. So there's a legal reason why you would want to claim whiteness. I mean, that's a nice idea to actually say, well, forget that. I'm just going to um, be in solidarity with oppressed people around the world. Right. And, you know, but you're, well, the price you're going to pay for that is to be deported. What's interesting to see is so many local opinion makers, white opinion makers, and judges say this is ridiculous. These people have been here for long. They are white. You know, they actually defend the whiteness of these Syrian Muslims and Christians. Mm -hmm. Now, it's complicated, though. When this goes down, some of the Syrian Christians are actually agitating against Muslims, saying they're not white, but we are. Right. So here we have religion directly related to racial whiteness, mm-hmm. that, that Christians can be white, but that Muslims can't. I think one of the things that my book does that is important and new in terms of understanding anti-Muslim sentiment and discrimination is it insists that we look, as you indicated, we look at different localities for different possibilities. Because mm-hmm. in Michigan City, Indiana, until World War I, Syrian Muslims are called Turks, and they are legally discriminated against in terms of their access to public space. That is very different mm-hmm. than Cedar Rapids, where Syrian Muslims do have access to public space and, mm-hmm. are, and are accepted as white ethnic or near-white ethnic people. So it changes depending on time and place. And I think that's very important is that while it's while we look at a lot of our studies of Islamophobia have looked at case law and, and, and federal policy, we also have to look at social history to see what spaces people have access to in order to understand whether or not they have the sort of wages or the privileges of whiteness. I wanted to get back to this idea of solidarity, right? So you talk about how on the structural level, having these kinds of alliances between Syrian American immigrants and indigenous or African American populations was precluded by the threat of deportation, the importance of trying to vie for whiteness, which was this coveted status. And so there's they're, they're living this time and citizenship is tied to whiteness. Christianity becomes tied to whiteness or Muslimness becomes racialized as non-white. And then some of these Syrian Muslims were indeed granted citizenship if they could prove um, or others could vouch for their whiteness. But I just wonder, could you talk a little bit about what the communities, the Syrian Midwestern communities themselves relationship was with whiteness in conjunction with the fact that they were homesteading on native lands that had been forcibly relinquished to the U.S. government, which you talk about in the book. But what were their relation, what their communities' relationships like to non-white populations, like indigenous and African-American communities? You already addressed like, the factors that, that would lead to their vying for whiteness rather than as people who are themselves seeking refuge from oftentimes oppressive Ottoman rule. What were sort of those individual relationships like if, if structurally we didn't see or maybe you can speak to that again, if there weren't sort of structural alliances between Syrian Midwestern communities and non-white communities. So it's hard. I mean, of course, I'm sure that there were 
individual relationships, you know, across racial, ethnic, and religious lines. But in terms of communal cooperation, we don't see that kind of cooperation until largely until after World War I. And Islam after World War I becomes so known among people of color as an anti-imperial resource Mm -hmm. and as an anti-racist resource that one sees uh, in the 1920s and going through the 1950s increased cooperation between African-American Muslim congregations and Arab American Muslim congregations. Mm. This is evident in the in the Midwest in the photographic record. I mean, where we have multiple examples of South Asian, Arab American, and Black American people dining together, worshiping together, organizing together. You know, so yeah. so so at that time, we really can talk about quite a lot of interracial solidarity. And one of the one of the main reasons for that is early in the 1920s, the Ahmadiyya movement coming from the Punjab in British India has fantastic success as a missionary movement and, and really does a, a very important work in convincing both Arab Americans and African Americans that Islam is an anti-imperial, anti-racist religion. So that's right. one of the con- sort of one of the consequences of Ahmadiyya creativity and work. So that's so that's one thing that goes on. But at the same time, what we see among Arab Americans is um, a ethnic religious solidarity that is necessary among themselves to compete in and for resources to participate in American society. This is different than the United States today. There are Arabic-speaking congregations among Muslims in the United States, both actually among Muslims and Christians, but but the number is small. What we find instead is multilinguistic, multi-ethnic Muslim and Christian congregations. And so we have to remember this is an era that was really quite different. And in order to participate in American society, you tended to rely on your ethnic religious group, whether that was Ashkenazi Jewish or mm-hmm. Scandinavian holiness or Polish Catholic. You know, that this is that that being a member of those ethnic religious communities especially in the Midwest, was essential to participating in public culture. That's so fascinating. And I think that in terms of, you know, going back to this idea of assimilation and that being tied to ethnicity, which is something that you started with in in your earlier remarks about the importance of sort of ethnic identity, as opposed to just thinking about religious identity, when we think about greater Syrian Ottoman immigrants who had built these connections over a shared ethnicity. It is interesting to think about the way that you talk about the role of ethnic religious congregations in the early 20th century and the impact of these early institutions as actual tools for assimilation. And so it's a way to think about being Muslim as an actual tool for assimilation, which is a really interesting way to think about Muslim national belonging through the contemporary lens, you know, in a, in a time when there, there's, there's a steady aggressive resurgence of nativism, which implies that to be Muslim is to be un-American or to be anti-American or to necessarily be outside of what can be a community that belongs nationally. And so could you say more on that, particularly in the context of how mosques and ethnic religious congregations more broadly were central to these narratives of assimilation for these groups. Yeah, and to be clear what I'm talking about when I say assimilation, a lot of people may first think of, oh, assimilation, that means they lost their traditions, their (laughs) particularity, right? But if you think about what it means to be assimilated in the United States, That is simply not the case in terms of how we organized our society here or how it was organized, right? Right. Because because ethnicity and race were absolutely key to the ways in which we participate in public culture, in the economy, in politics, uh, and in civil society. And one of the things that any a scholar or historian of religion in the United States would tell you is we are quite strange in that the local religious congregation 
is so very, very important to our civil society in the United States. I mean, to this day, the best funded philanthropy is the local religious congregation. It consumes uh, more dollars. And it was even more important, one could argue, before World War II. I mean, to be American, to participate in American life was to be a member, is to have your own religious ethnic congregation. And um, that then gave you the power to participate in society. And that's what I mean by assimilation. To assimilate is to participate with others in your society. The older sociologists used to read this as some sort of segregation. It wasn't. That's what everybody did, whether they were white, Protestant, or, you know, or Black Catholic, in order to to participate. So I see that as a form of assimilation, but one of, of building power. And it's so different if you think about these first and second generation Arabic speaking people from the greater Syria from which they came. First of all, women did not tend to go to Friday congregational prayers in the villages. Mm -hmm. The mosque was a male space. The shrine, the shrine was more of a a, a male and female space, but the Mm -hmm. mosque is a male space, oftentimes, at least for Friday congregational prayers. Two is you don't have sports leagues, picnics, documents of um, rules. Uh, You don't file for a tax exemption. I mean, none of this is part of Mm -hmm. being a member. And you're not a member of a mosque, per se, in Ottoman Syria. You might go to one mosque if it's close to you and then another mosque for prayers if you happen to be away from that mosque. It's so it's very different. So so by building a mosque, it's not just about preserving one is Islam, one's Islamic identity. It's about making Islam a, an American religion in the same way that there are other American religions, whether we're talking about Judaism or Christianity. That's really interesting. This process of Americanization of Islam, as you just said, becoming an American religion. And so when we think about the way that the role of religious congregations take a very unique shape in the U.S. And as, as religious congregations become more American, in a sense, they start to look more Protestant. So when we think about synagogues introducing family pews where women start com- being a part of that public space, mosques becoming these like community centers in the U.S. where it is more family-oriented. Of course, one could argue that they're still very, mosques are very male-dominated, but there are a lot of different alternative kinds of spaces cropping up but also just the shape of uh, mosques as community centers where they're doing events that involve more than just men coming in for prayer. And so that's something that's interesting in the way of thinking about a goal beyond preservation about but what it looks like to sort of set roots down for Muslims. Well, and we've emphasized the, the family pew, but it's also important to remember how much among Protestants up until after World War II Men and women were generally sitting, or oftentimes sitting, on different sides of the congregation. We, right. we've, we've overemphasized because I mean, it's like when Leila Ahmed talks about going to Britain for her education from Egypt, and she talks in one of her autobiographical chapters about perfecting the harem. Protestant Christianity in the Anglo-American tradition is oftentimes about gender segregation, not about gender integration. So it's both, you know, but yes, I mean, that. but still it's that, it's, I think that the thing to, it, it, to emphasize is the congregation as the most basic unit of civil society beyond your family. I think that's really what we're talking about here. And that's different than most places in the world, including many parts of Europe. Yeah, that, that's an, that, I think that's an important distinction to think about how Protestant communities had these same sort of patterns of gender segregation. But I, I guess I more so meant even the introduction of women into public worship, worship spaces. Um, well, see, as, but, that's, but they were public in Syria. There were plenty of women in public worship spaces. So when you go to, when you go to the shrine of a saint, to the awliya, to the friends of God, there are plenty of women there. Women have always been public in Islam. There's never been a time when women weren't part when women weren't in public spaces. But because the congregation rather than the shrine was so central to the creation right. of American right. religious identities, we just didn't establish shrines here. 
Right, right. So that's such an important distinction to think about these other kinds of religious public spaces of worship, like the shrine, as opposed to the central focus on on the mosque, which I think is such a, so thank you for bringing up that clarification. I think that's such an important distinction to think about what it means when we talk about public roles of in, in sort of worship. It doesn't and, do me any favors when I'm introducing my students to Islam and I talk to them about the whole, you know, about the centrality of the awliya, the friends of God, to women's public spaces, you know, and then they can't go see it in their neighborhood <laughs> because, it, because, uh, because besides Bawa Muhayyadeen's Mazar in, Phil- in Pennsylvania, yeah. there are mm-hmm. just very, very few places I can send them right, to. Right, right. What about, and this is kind of, this is largely related to something that you were saying before about maybe this perception that ethnic congregations can be very isolating or as sort of segregation from the rest of society. So uh, how would we think about the role of, let's say, these kinds of ethnic religious congregations of Syrian Muslims in this period, as opposed to, you know, in in your work, you've also written a lot about the nation of Islam in terms of having these spaces, or, or even if we think about the Black church as, as this like place of political participation and organization, almost in, in, as a response to thinking about being excluded from sort of more public spheres of political participation. And so how would we think about the role of these ethnic con- religious congregations in comparison to, let's say, the role of the Black church or the role of the nation of Islam in or, around, you know, 20th century? Well, for the most part, these mosques were very explicitly, the Syrian Muslim mosques, committed to the ideas of citizenship, of U.S. citizenship, that were so popular among religious congregations, whether Jewish or Christian in general. So that these are very explicitly, when they when they file their articles of incorporation with the secretaries of state, almost always it says something about, and this is going to teach us to be better citizens of the United States, more loyal citizens of the United States. That's very different than the alternate social and political citizenship that is offered by the nation of Islam, which is an, you know, an Afro-pessimist institution that says, no, no, they'll never accept you. It may mirror in many ways a, a, a nationalist tendency, but it's about creating a you know, safe space for self-love um, with the possibility of, of dignity and pride outside of an anti-Black racist environment. Now, that's right. very different than many of the African-American churches, which again, prominently displaying the U.S. flag, sending right. their sons and daughters to serve in the U.S. military. You, you Overwhelmingly, you see Black churches being, you know, an engine of the civil rights movement about participation in the political mainstream, you know, trying to exercise what they believe to be their 14th and 15th Amendment rights in the United States. Yeah, that, that's a really important, I think, distinction to think of think differently about their attitudes towards citizenship. But it goes back to this idea of vying for, in in the context of these early congregations, of what it means to vie for whiteness in a period where citizenship is so closely tied to that. Because it makes me think about um, Vivek Bald's work on, on Bengali Harlem, where similarly, you ha- it's again, this uncovering this lost history of um, Bengali Muslim men setting down roots in Harlem, in New York City, but marrying into Black and Puerto Rican families. And for even the ones that sort of retained their religious practices, their Muslim practices, uh, although over time, kind of assimilation and a lot of the patterns that, that we see you describe happening to these early Ottoman Syrian Muslim immigrants, but there's a way in which they're not recognized as Muslim because of their Blackness. There's that sort of level of erasure on the level of on the one hand, where Muslims are being racialized as other, but then they also slip through the cracks when when blackness is not recognized as Muslim. So that's because it's happening around the same region. It just made me think of these different kind of scenarios and different patterns of migration and assimilation, really depending on relationships to to whiteness. Whereas these Bengali men couldn't viably argue for whiteness on the basis of their skin tone. Or, right, um, and there were um, there were darker darker Arab Americans who also couldn't pass. Right. So I mean, what we have, you know, Arabs like um, Latino and Latinas people are multicolored. We're black, white, and brown, and and to this day, 
you know, how dark our skin is really does affect our reception in public space. Right, right. I wanted to jump back to the role of women, which you talked a little bit about before. Some of my favorite profiles in the book were these fascinating female characters from businesswomen and farmers to poets, religious leaders. And women's stories are so often obscured and missing from the archives for some of the reasons that we just listed, we were just talking about in terms of when we think about women being absent from the mosque. Um, that sort of taken as synonymous with absent from public religious life, or as you just mentioned, the existence of shrines and other kinds of public worship spaces. And so women's stories are often so obscured for all of these reasons and missing from the archives. And so this was very exciting to see. And I wondered if you could preview for our listeners who haven't read the book yet, some of the roles that Muslim women played, especially in early Islamic institution building. So the first chapter begins with the story of Alia Abdi Hassan, who is born around 1910 in western South Dakota on a homestead that her dad, Ali, and her mom, Fatima, filed there. And then she grows up in Sioux Falls. And really, she is one of the figures in the book that we could that we can trace throughout the book. And really the story in, in some ways begins with her story and then ends with her story. What was so fascinating, she was a very public about a lot of her struggles as a young woman. She was a poet. She learned to be a poet in the public schools of Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and she took that with her the rest of her life. But she ends up becoming one of the, if not the most important Arab American Muslim woman leader of the 1950s and 60s, the intellectual. I mean, decades before people were writing about the founding, uh, the, the role of women in early Islam, she was writing about that in the 1960s in Muslim American publications. Um, she was a liaison to Malcolm X from, from the Arab community. She crossed racial and other boundaries. You can't believe, given the history that uh, of her that I discovered in the records that she herself left behind at the Arab American National Museum and at the Bentley Library of University of Michigan, you you couldn't predict that she was going to be so important from these mm. from these humble backgrounds. So she's one of the people. I mean, more than anyone else, we get to see in her life the challenges, personal challenges of a bad husband, um, of illness but also of an incredible Muslim American consciousness that is formed not in contradistinction to, but in concert with her Midwestern upbringing. And that's a theme that, of course, it comes back over and over again uh, in the book. So she's one of the, she's a very important leader. In Cedar Rapids, I talk a lot about the women, especially from the Igram and the Aussie families, who helped to establish the what would later be dubbed the Mother Mosque in 1934 and 1935. Mm-hmm. And one of the comments I love in the book is one of them says, well, the men were very helpful, too. I don't know if you remember that. I think I have a section highlighted. Yeah, they're (laughs) raising money for the mosque, you know, and it cost around $5,500 at the time. These are, you know, such important founding figures. So we learn about their unique. And then we learn some of those stories I kind of alluded to before of the women who aren't just at home, who are outside the home and who are doing really hard work. Mary Juma, who has maybe the first Muslim kid in Western North Dakota, Charlie Juma, she's out there busting sod and planting the fields. This is extremely hard work. I mean, and she lives in this shack and it's extremely, you know. And then we also learn about Ishi uh, Sharonik, who is Cedar Rapids' answer to, um, to Rosie the Riveter. She's working the line in World War II packing up deliveries for the troops in Europe. So, I mean, so we've got, you know, we've, we've got all kinds of particip- public participation of Muslim women, both as leaders in their religious communities, mm-hmm. including sometimes leading prayers, mm-hmm. yeah. which would surprise a lot, but also just more publicly involved. Yeah, that's so fascinating. And I had that exact section posted and highlighted where it was like the women were the... Um, the brains and the labor behind Mother Mosque of America, like what we think of these essential sort of 
uh, institutions in American Muslim history where it's like, yeah, and the men sort of helped out too. Um, and essentially also serving as religious scholars and teachers and resources for the community, which is exciting to see. Because of course, these stories exist everywhere, but they're obscured and they're often missing from the archives. So it's just really exciting to see that well, in the, the record. That I, I was excited as well. And the other thing oftentimes is that women's, Muslim women's religiosity is oftentimes talked about in terms of ritual or, you know, or material culture, clothes, you know, these are maybe uh, music, you know, folk songs. But what was very clear about many of these women, particularly in Cedar Rapids, is just how important Islamic knowledge was to them. Mm -hmm. And that is something that is even, you know, among contemporary Muslim Americans, I think is not well known. That long, that a hundred years ago, you know, that there were Muslim women who cared deeply about studying and understanding Islam and who valued Islamic knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's so valuable to to situate that in history, as opposed to kind of thinking it's a it's a product of a modern kind of move right now, as we see the emergence of more women scholars as religious teachers, uh, resources in the community, legal experts, all of that. And to sort of be able to situate that as a part of Islamic history within the U.S. and, of course, elsewhere. And it contradicts stereotypes of Muslim, Arab Muslim men as well, because guess who's oftentimes paying for these Muslim daughters to go to to, to get a, a higher education. If they, I mean, we sometimes forget just how many women in the first half of the 1920s in this country went to college. It declined mm. after that in the Great Depression, but it was a great deal. And so mm. they were, I mean, and the, my grandmother, you know, uh, went to St. Mary's College where he, she met her husband at Notre Dame University because her father, an Arab Christian immigrant in this case, wanted very much for her to have a higher education. Yeah, I, I wanted to get back to your grandmother because I wanted to, to hear generally about the experience of researching and writing this book, you know, going back to where we started about how personal it was. And so you paint these really vivid pictures of, of profiles of, in, in your profiles of individuals. And there's quite a range of characters. You just talked about some of them. And I was really moved by how your grandmother serves as the first person that we meet. Um, and so I'm curious about what that experience was like writing about her, but also how you chose the other figures. Was it for particular anecdotes you were drawn to that jumped out at you? Or was it more so, or to what extent did the available material in the archives determine yeah. who you could actually profile? Well, and as you know, my grandmother was not Muslim, so it was perhaps an odd choice to to begin with her, but um, she may have been descended from a Muslim. I pick her because she was so typical, not of Muslims, but of Arabs, including mm-hmm. Christians and Muslims of her generation. Right. And I mean, her story really does parallel so many of the other sto- the stories of women in the, yeah. um, in the book. And so I think, and I was actually going to put that in a... Um, in an afterword, but the initial readers of my book said, you've got to start with this story. Yeah. Um, you know, it's um, it explains how you became interested in the topic and why it means so much to you personally. So I, so I did decide and tried to show what was similar and different from the other women and, and men. When I write a book, I oftentimes will count the number of men in it and the number of women in it. Mm. I'm committed to to basic gender equality in my writing, that women's experiences are important as men's. So, um, so that's very, and oftentimes I try to highlight them because, you know, because they, because their history has been ignored. Right. And so, but honestly, I would never have been able to do this if it hadn't been for Elixir Knapp. Part of the reason why I could hope to get that amount of detail is because the most important historian of the Arab American experience, the woman after whom the collection at the Smithsonian, the National Museum of American History is named, the Naf Collection, Alexa Naf. Mm. She cared enough to interview women and men. It matters that the most important historian of Arab America was a woman, mm-hmm. the, really the founding figure in so many ways. She recorded, we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of oral history interviews. And so where I include all of the uh, details of their lives so that you can picture where they are, when they are, 
maybe, you know, what they were doing precisely, what they were doing on a certain day, oftentimes that was because they had told that story to Elixanap or to one of the mm. people who worked for Elixanap. And th- that was my single best source. Now, I, of course, I used hundreds of other documents, especially to unearth stories that were not. But but where you got the kind of detail you're talking about, almost always that depended on a first person voice, you know, or from their child who would tell us about their and because she was recording these interviews in the 70s and 80s, that's now 50 years ago. So we're talking about significant, you know, uh, significantly closer time to to 1920 than um, or even 1900 than today. Yeah, that's fascinating. And, and, you know, with Muslims of the Heartland, this is now an addition and an important sort of crucial part of, of documenting that history. And so you're continuing that work here. Yeah, could I mention the one thing that she didn't have, right? There were certain questions she couldn't answer because she didn't have all the census data. There were certain sort of, she had the kind of oral history interviews, right? Which is a fantastic yeah. source. But I was able to go further because I've got city directories. I've got newspaper articles that I can do keyword searches in or get the old microfilm. So I did the, you know, what a historian normally does, you know, in right. addition to that, in order to get even more detail uh, and to make sure sometimes I would find things where people would say something and it wasn't quite right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I wondered. So before we move on to the last question, I wondered if you had any reflections that you could share on maybe your own emotional experiences of uncovering and piecing together uh, and going through the archives and matching them with um, census records and things like that. So I know that, um, you know, these are stories of resilience and hardship, sometimes intimate family issues, um, obviously discrimination, racism uh, that we've talked about and ultimately erasure. And I know that, you know, scholars, especially scholars of color, have often spoken about the trauma and the violence of the archive throughout the process of sort of piecing together histories of places and peoples that, you know, are predicated on mass displacement, forced migration, trauma, um, violence, but also hope as, as you sort of, and also the sort of reclaiming as you talk about. So I just wondered, you know, if you could share any of your sort of reflections and your own sort of emotional experiences of, of the process of researching and writing this. I understand the trauma of the archive. I think sometimes actually the most traumatic incidents that I was uh, narrating were those in which um, the homesteaders were taking land that had mm-hmm. been occupied just a couple years before by right. Native American people. And my emotions were, on the one hand, seeing that as, you know, a travesty, but I also remember that they themselves had been displaced by a global right. economy in which they were victimized. These were very poor people. You know, mm-hmm. and so it was hard to see to see it simply as victim and victimizer. And right. I'm not sure in the end how much they understood about the land. <laughs> I mean, they, right. their command of English was very limited oftentimes, mm-hmm. you know, and they certainly couldn't speak native languages um, mm-hmm. in 1900. So, you know, so I wondered. So that was one thing. I think with Alia Ogdi's struggles Honestly, I worried about whether they would, because she had struggles in her marriage and she had a bad husband, I wondered whether readers would affirm their own stereotypes about Arab men. But I loved, I mean, her truth telling felt empowering to me rather Mm -hmm. than something else. And so I wanted to, I wanted to include it. I mean, she wanted it to be known. She, it was, you know, I wasn't revealing something that she didn't want revealed. She wanted people to know her whole self. And so that felt empowering rather than, you know, disempowering. I must say, though, overall, I did not feel traumatized by this experience. Mm -hmm. I felt energized and I felt a sense of wonder and delight and joy as I rediscovered Mm -hmm. these ancestors whom I really didn't know existed. Yeah. And I felt so strengthened by their presence. And, you know, that probably just reflects my own, whatever it is that I needed at that time. You know, I mean, again, I'm writing this in the post-Trump era or the Trump. Right. Era. And so, but, but I, I mean, the, the moment, I, I can't explain why it is that the moment I found out that 
a Syrian farmer had planted hummus, chickpeas, in the 19-teens in the Dakotas. I don't know why that gave me such delight exactly, but it did. I couldn't I couldn't believe it. And it was reported in the paper as uh, the Syrian pea can be uh, readily adaptable to the dry farming techniques of our region. In its native country, it's called hummus, H-A-M-U-S. And I said, no, that's hummus. And, uh, you know, so I, I don't know why, but it, 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 it brought me a lot of delight. Yeah, that's really beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. And I think it goes back to what you were saying earlier about this is a book to remind these communities of Arab American communities to remind you and your family um, and the communities that you come from uh, in terms of Muslim Arab communities of where they're from and their own history. And that's always something that would be heartening. And, and so I'm not surprised that, you know, learning of how these farmers are planting hummus was a moving, sort of exciting, uh, delightful experience to learn. And so um, I wanted to end with, you know, one of the central questions that the History Speaks podcast is invested in exploring is how Islamic history in its own context helps us to understand our contemporary moment. So we've talked a bit about that in this conversation, but I wondered if we could just end with, could you highlight for our listeners some of the stakes in uncovering this history and, uh, and, and, and recaps and the goals for writing the book? So like, in other words, like, what does it mean to affirm that Muslim, Arab Muslims are not a recent or foreign addition to the U.S.? Uh, you know, as opposed to the balance between arguing for this more accurate narrative that, yes, Syrian Muslim immigrant origin stories are very similar to other immigrant origin stories that date back to the early 20th century, while also pushing back against anti-immigrant xenophobia that implies that to be foreign or new to this country somehow makes you lesser. And I think you touched on this when you said this is not to convince others um, to accept Arab Muslims as a part of American history. So what do you think about that balance in terms of, in, in sort of maybe highlighting what the stakes are for this history? Well, Islamic history doesn't just speak to the middle <laughs> the arab world the middle east to south asia right islamic history in this case speaks uh, deeply to midwestern history first of all i from a scholarly perspective this very small population in terms of being a small percentage of the overall midwestern population illustrates how it was that the midwest worked as a human geography because they came at a time when, I mean, what what does what do the short grass prairies of the Western Dakotas have to do with the Great Lakes? You know, I mean, well, mm -hmm. their comings and going illustrate exactly what it had to do. At this time, the Midwest is this economic powerhouse of the country because Native American lands are taken or seized, put into agricultural production. And technological, this kind, the industrial revolution around what we call the Rust Belt, the Great Lakes, is absolutely connected to the agricultural surplus that these immigrants helped to create. So for, from a scholarly perspective, in this case, Islamic history illuminates Midwestern history. But second, in terms of, of today and the larger, a larger sort of political impact of this story is it is a powerful anecdote to the idea that still exists among many of the people around whom I grew up in rural Southern Illinois, that diversity is something new. It just had just the, 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 that it just happened in the last couple of years. And mm -hmm. what this story powerfully shows, and we began, you know, our, 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 our hour long conversation about this, what this story powerfully shows is that the Midwest, as we understand it, has never been culturally monolithic. From the Native American peoples who spoke different languages, who were themselves diverse, to the first Afro-Eurasian immigrants who came here. This region, so associated with whiteness, with lily whiteness and white redness, mm -hmm. has always been diverse. And if we want to speak the truth, <laughs> you don't have to be uh, sort of um, woke in order to recognize the truth that people of different racial, religious, and ethnic backgrounds are responsible for creating the region in which I grew up and in which all Midwesterners live today. And that is a powerful story about how Islamic history is part of Midwestern history. 
That's such a powerful corrective thinking about the Midwest more broadly and sort of the way that myths have overtaken our sort of the contemporary public U.S. imagination. Thank you so much, Edward, for this insightful conversation on your book, Muslims of the Heartland, How Syrian Immigrants Made a Home in the American Midwest, uh, which we will link to in the show notes. I will also link to Arab Indianapolis, a book of essays and accompanying documentary that Professor Curtis has produced, which attests to the contributions of Arab Americans to Indianapolis. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. 